You are listening to Learn Out Loud's Biography Podcast. With this series, we will explore the lives of notable people throughout history, whether it be world leaders, political activists, spiritual luminaries, great artists, or everyday people. This podcast will be a showcase for their story. For a complete listing of Learn Out Loud's podcasts, please visit us at www.learnoutloud.com podcast. This podcast is provided by Harper Audio. To find this audiobook and other Harper Audio offerings, please visit www.harperaudio.com. Cadman Presents Profiles in Courage by John F. Kennedy Read by John F. Kennedy, Jr. Daniel Webster The blizzardy night of January 21, 1850, was no night in Washington for an ailing old man to be out. But wheezing and coughing fitfully, Henry Clay made his way through the snowdrifts to the home of Daniel Webster. He had a plan, a plan to save the Union, and he knew he must have the support of the North's most renowned orator and statesman. He knew that he had no time to lose, for that very afternoon President Taylor in a message to Congress asking California's admission as a free state, had only thrown fuel on the raging fire that threatened to consume the Union. But Henry Clay had a plan for another great compromise to preserve the nation. For an hour, he outlined its contents to Daniel Webster and the warmth of the latter's comfortable home, and together they talked of saving the Union. Few meetings in American history have ever been so productive or so ironic in their consequences. For the Compromise of 1850 added to Henry Clay's garlands as the great pacificator. But Daniel Webster's support, which ensured its success, resulted in his political crucifixion and, for half a century or more, his historical condemnation. The man upon whom Henry Clay called that wintry night was one of the most extraordinary figures in American political history. Not in his ability to win men to a cause, he was no match in that with Henry Clay, not in his ability to hammer out a philosophy of government, Calhoun outshone him there, but in his ability to make alive and supreme the latest sense of oneness, of union, that all Americans felt, but which few could express. But how Daniel Webster could express it, how he could express almost any sentiments, a very slow speaker, hardly averaging a hundred words a minute, Webster combined the musical charm of his deep, organ-like voice, a vivid imagination, an ability to crush his opponents with a barrage of facts, a confident and deliberate manner of speaking, and a striking appearance to make his orations a magnet that drew crowds hurrying to the Senate chamber. But whatever his faults, Daniel Webster remained the greatest orator of his day, the leading member of the American Bar, one of the most renowned leaders of the Whig Party, and the only senator capable of checking Calhoun. And thus Henry Clay knew he must enlist these extraordinary talents on behalf of his great compromise. Time and events proved he was right. As the godlike Daniel listened in thoughtful silence, the sickly Clay unfolded his last great effort to hold the Union together. Its key features were five in number. The compromise would be condemned by the southern extremists as appeasement and by the northern abolitionists as 90% concessions to the south with a meaningless 10% sop thrown to the north. But Daniel Webster feared that civil violence would only rivet the chains of slavery the more strongly, and the preservation of the Union was far dearer to his heart than his opposition to slavery. And thus, on that fateful January night, 
Daniel Webster promised Henry Clay his conditional support and took inventory of the crisis about him. By the end of February, the senator from Massachusetts had determined upon his course. Only the Clay Compromise, Daniel Webster decided, could avert secession and civil war, and he wrote a friend that he planned to make an honest truth-telling speech and a union speech and discharge a clear conscience. As he set to work preparing his notes, he received abundant warning of the attacks his message would provoke. His constituents and Massachusetts newspapers admonished him strongly not to waver in his consistent anti-slavery stand, and many urged him to employ still tougher tones against the South. And so came the 7th of March, 1850, the only day in history which would become the title of a speech delivered on the Senate floor. No one recalls today, no one even recalled in 1851, the formal title Webster gave his address, for it had become the 7th of March speech, as much as Independence Day is known as the 4th of July. Two hours before the Senate was to meet, the chamber, the galleries, the anterooms, and even the corridors of the Capitol were filled with those who had been traveling for days from all parts of the nation to hear Daniel Webster. The crowd fell silent as Daniel Webster rose slowly to his feet. All eyes were fixed on the speaker. No spectator save his own son knew what he would say. He abandoned his previous opposition to slavery in the territories, abandoned his constituents' abhorrence of the fugitive slave law, abandoned his own place in the history and hearts of his countrymen, and abandoned his last chance for the goal that had eluded him for over 20 years, the presidency. Daniel Webster preferred to risk his career and his reputation rather than risk the Union. Mr. President, he began, I wish to speak today not as a Massachusetts man, nor as a northern man, but as an American and a member of the Senate of the United States. I speak today for the preservation of the Union. Hear me for my cause. For three hours and eleven minutes, with only a few references to his extensive notes, Daniel Webster pleaded the Union's cause. Relating the grievances of each side, he asked for conciliation and understanding in the name of patriotism. The Senate's main concern, he insisted, was neither to promote slavery nor to abolish it, but to preserve the United States of America. There was no applause, buzzing and astonished whispering yes, but no applause. Perhaps his hearers were too intent or too astonished. A reporter rushed to the telegraph office. Mr. Webster has assumed a great responsibility, he wired his paper, and whether he succeeds or fails, the courage with which he has come forth at least entitles him to the respect of the country. Daniel Webster did succeed. Even though his speech was repudiated by many in the North, the very fact that one who represented such a belligerent constituency would appeal for understanding in the name of unity and patriotism was recognized in Washington and throughout the South as a bona fide assurance of Southern rights. And so, the danger of immediate secession and bloodshed passed. 